So the biblical doctrine of creation is that God created the universe out of nothing. Look at Genesis 1.1. You probably know it off the top of your head. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So how is this creative act, God creating out of nothing, how is this creative act in contrast with how maybe human beings might create something? Okay. Have to have material. Right, exactly. What are some examples of that? How might human beings create Okay, good. Yeah. Did anybody create breakfast this morning? <laughs> Make breakfast this morning? Or a cup of coffee or something? Right? There's different levels of that, right? There's, there's more or less creativity that goes into these different acts, but certainly. Yeah, exactly. Good. Yeah, combine things that already exist. So when we talk about God creating the universe, this is distinct. This is a divine act that no creature can duplicate, right? When God began to create the universe, nothing else existed except God himself. That's the impetus of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. Now, I wonder, when was the last time that you sat still long enough to ponder this truth? Before anything was, God was. So maybe you remember, probably as a child, the first time that your mind was boggled by this reality. Do you remember kind of banging your head against that proverbial wall? So the teaching of Genesis 1 is that the universe had a beginning, but God always was. So the ancient Greeks, philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, conceived of a universe that was eternal. They even had a phrase, a Greek phrase, out of nothing, nothing comes, right? Which is right. I mean, that's true. If nothing ever existed, then nothing would still exist. So the logical conclusion for them uh, was that matter must be eternal. And then even other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts tell of their God fashioning the earth out of pre-existing materials. And even up until the, last half, or the first half of the 20th century, modern cosmologists thought that the universe itself was eternal. So it wasn't until an astronomer in the 1920s by the name of Edwin Hubble, you may have heard of the Hubble telescope, so he measured the movement of galaxies in space and he found that they were moving away from one another. I think with the exception of the Andromeda galaxy, which is hurtling towards us and will collide with our own galaxy in about 4 billion years. So just be ready for that. But in this measurement, Hubble proved that the universe itself was expanding. And if the universe was expanding, that means it all started at one point. And this was so revelatory, right? So the evidence suggested that the universe had a beginning. And prior to this, even Einstein, with his own theory of general relativity, had, ha had had to introduce a fudge factor into his equation prior to Hubble's discovery because his math just didn't work out to prove an infinite universe. So he, he introduced this fudge factor. And then after some persuading, supposedly after visiting with, with Hubble, uh, he was able to drop the, the fudge factor and his math made sense. So the theory of general re relativity combined with Hubble's uh, discovery of the expansion of the universe suggested that the universe did indeed have a beginning. Well, now, now modern cosmologists, they, they can't really come to terms with that, so they have all these other theories of maybe a collapsing universe <clears throat> and then an expanding universe, but uh, at this point, there's really no general uh, agreement on that.
But Scripture testifies, right, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, think of Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So that last phrase says, the reason anything exists is because God wills it. So whether we're talking about the farthest flung galaxy and its billions of celestial bodies, to the person sitting next to you in the chair, to your very own life, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's John 1, John 1, 3. The Puritan pastor, Jonathan Edwards, he had this kind of quirky uh, explanation of God upholding all things by the word of his power. So he called it this continual creation. This truth, right, for Edwards was so profound, he would explain it kind of like this. Your very existence from one moment to the next is not necessary. The sun, the universe's existence from one moment to the next is not necessary. The whole universe only exists from one moment to the next because God upholds it with his word. The very word that spoke it all into existence in the beginning. So for Edwards, the continual existence of the universe is as miraculous and God-dependent as the initial act of creation, such that Edwards understood God to be continually recreating, so to speak, the entire universe moment by moment for all of time. That's some heavy lifting this morning at 10 after. So whether you follow Edwards' argument or not is really beside the point. The God who made the world and everything in it gives to all men life and breath and everything. That's Acts 17, 24 through 25. The breath in your lungs right now is a gift from God. The gases in the earth's atmosphere are just right to sustain your life with every inhale and every exhale. It is no accident. It is a gift from your creator. <clears throat> Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what was not made out of things so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. That's the NASB translation, which most accurately reflects the Greek, Greek text, or so I'm told, um, and comes probably closest to teaching this doctrine of ex nihilo creation. Also, Romans 4.17 speaks of the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. That kind of sets the stage for the creator-creature distinction, right? So what do you have to do with your existence as a creature? Romans 4 says nothing. You owe your existence to God, period, full stop. And not you, not just you, but everything that exists is dependent upon God. So this is where St. Augustine really gets his juices flowing. So it's been said that the doctrine of creation was for Augustine what justification was for Martin Luther. You get this doctrine wrong and everything else falls with it. So it's no wonder that the Bible you hold in your hand starts right here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in case anybody wants to be sneaky, not necessarily anybody in this room, but somebody wants to be sneaky and question what might not be included in that phrase, heaven and earth in Genesis 1, it's worth noting that heaven and earth is a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M, which is 
a Hebrew literary device which is meant to express the totality of two extremes, so heaven and earth and everything in between. So it might be like saying night and day or Lord, you know my sitting down and my rising up. By linking these two terms, heaven and earth, together, the Hebrew intends to express all that exists. So let's do a little thinking here. If we were to deny the doctrine of God creating out of nothing, what would be some conclusions we would be forced to draw? So if we wanted to say that God didn't create ex nihilo, he didn't create things out of nothing, what would be some of the logical conclusions that we would have to draw from that? So Sam said that God must be dependent upon something else to do his creative work. Absolutely. What else? You've got something else other than God if you deny this uh, creative act. Yeah. What, what, are, what are some of attribute, the attributes of God maybe that we've considered the previous two weeks that would be challenged by denying God's creative active or God's creation ex nihilo. Yeah. Right. Anything else? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Power, sovereignty, independence. Saity, all of those things uh, would be called into question. And what confidence would we then have that God could fulfill all of his promises, right? If there was something that existed outside of him, some part of the universe that was not created by him, we would, we would have no confidence that God could fulfill what he set out to do. So on the flip side, what are, the, what are some of the positive aspects that flow from God's creation out of nothing? What are some of the implications for you and me this morning? Yeah. God is in charge, has power over all things. They're his, right? Like it's ownership. They're his. What else? How does it inform our worship? Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, first example of his generosity. It says so many other things about, sets us on the right track for so many of the other paths that we're going to walk down or that we may be already considered. I think for, if you've read much on St. Augustine, he talks a lot about this idea of inordinate loves, right? That the problem with human beings is, is not that we love the wrong things, but we love them in the wrong order. So the doctrine of creation sets us in the right order. God's supreme, everything else, right? First Timothy six seventeen says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So Paul's writing to Timothy is not, hey, there's some people in your church that are really enjoying life too much, right? 
That's not his issue. He's saying they're putting their hope in the wrong thing, right? And it goes back to this creator-creature distinction. You get creator-God right, you recognize that everything else that we have is, is here for our enjoyment, but we must enjoy it in relation to God first and foremost. So it's a, it's a, it's a ballast in the boat of our, or in the heart of our lives, so to speak, right? It, it orients us correctly uh, when we get this doctrine of creation right. Um, the second, or B, I guess, under the first point, uh, just briefly, it's worth noting that not only did God create the material universe, this is primarily what we've been thinking about, but he also created the spiritual one as well. Someone flip over to uh, Nehemiah 9.6 and read this prayer of Ezra out loud for us. Nehemiah 9.6. Right. So this prayer of Ezra's references this host of heaven, which seems to be alluding to angels and other heavenly creatures, since Ezra says they engage in the, this activity of worshiping God, which is what we see angels doing in other places in, in Scripture. Also, you, you, know, you may be thinking of uh, in the New Testament where Paul writes to the Colossians, for by Christ or by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so here the creation of invisible beings is explicitly affirmed, right? So there's no, there's no creature that exists that is not, uh, does not owe its existence to creative act of God. Any questions or comments at this point? I mean, he certainly didn't have like, you know, neo-Darwinists that were, <laughs> you know, that were opposing him. Um, the, I guess it would be Manichaeism would be kind of the prominent thought of the day. And I think that's probably what, what he was, um, yeah, was, was primarily working against. The question was who kind of who was opposing Augustine's teaching in, in the fourth century. Okay. So the doctrine of ex nihilo creation is kind of that first doctrine of creation that Christians will hold like this, right? There's other things that we'll talk about later that we want to hold more loosely, but this is one of those that, that we can't let go or literally everything else falls apart. Uh, the next point that we want to draw out is that the Bible teaches that God created Adam and Eve in a special personal way. So if you look at Genesis 2.7, Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. After that, God created, uh, created Eve from Adam's body. So if you skip on down to verse 21 of the same chapter. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
So I think at this point we have to acknowledge that Christians differ on the extent to which evolutionary processes may have occurred after creation. It would be intellectually dishonest to say otherwise. Many people will make it, many Christians will make a distinction between micro and macro evolution. So those who hold to a kind of a macro evolution believe that human beings evolved from a common life uh, form over millions of years. This is particularly difficult to reconcile with this creation of Eve that we just read because it portrays her as having no female parent but being made directly from the bone of Adam. Okay? So from a purely naturalistic evolutionary view, this would really not be possible. Furthermore, the New Testament reaffirms the historicity of this special creation of Adam and Eve uh, when Paul writes, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. That's 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. There, there's, there's so much more that could be said here, and we just simply don't have time to dive into all of it. But if, if you're like me and you've got more questions about how creation and evolution how we should think about these in Christi uh, as Christians, I would recommend this book. So 40 Questions About Creation and Evolution um, by Keith Lee and Rooker. It's actually extremely accessible. Uh, it addresses, addresses the issues of modern science in the scriptural text. So check it out. If you're curious, I think you'll be served well by it. But this, the point of this special creation of Adam and, Adam and Eve is this. Though we share many sim physical similarities with animals, human beings are different, according to Scripture. As the pinnacle of God's creation on the sixth day, we are created in the image of God. So when you read through even this brief account of creation in Genesis, you simply cannot miss the wonderful emphasis in the importance of man and woman in distinction from the rest of creation. That's what the author Moses wanted us to get. To get. So what does this perspective of human significance mean for us? What does the doctrine of the special creation of Adam and Eve mean for us? There's multiple answers. Someone, oh. Yes. Yeah. Every, every human being has value because they're created in the image of God. Absolutely. Frank, were you tracking with that? Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So moral responsibility, we can breach that responsibility in sin, whereas the animals can't. All good, all good things. How many of today's cultural disagreements hinge on this doctrine? What are some of the things that you can think of that hinge on this doctrine of the special creation of Adam and Eve? Abortion? Yeah. Yeah, how so? Yeah, God created male and female specifically, right? Right. Yep, so race is informed by this doctrine. Good. Someone mentioned abortion on the other end of life. It's euthanasia. 
So last week, Sam Connect. Oh, I'm the, I, I never. I didn't introduce myself. I'm not Sam, in case you were wondering. So Sam Connect taught on the doctrine of the Trinity uh, last week, and um, while God the Father was the clear initiating agent in the act of creation, the Bible also speaks to the work of the second person of the Trinity and uh, the Holy Spirit as well. We we've already referenced John one three. Uh, earlier, all things were made through him, that is the second person of the Trinity, and without him was not anything made that was made. So that was the Apostle John. Um, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul uses similar language describing the second person of the Trinity as the one through whom creation came into being. So 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all, are all things and through whom we exist. Uh, Hebrews 1, one of the other Christological passages uh, says that the Son is the one through whom God created the world. So we see the Son throughout Scripture depicted as the active agent carrying out the plans and directions of the Father. Uh, the Holy Spirit was also at work in creation. Sam referenced this last week in Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Side note on this. I thought, I didn't even know I was going to say this, but I'm, I'll go ahead and point it out. It's interesting how Many times Christians, this is completely off topic, but it's interesting how many times Christians misinterpret the work of the Holy Spirit. And so often in like evangelical Christian circles, the work of the Holy Spirit's kind of this like stir up of like spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, it's interesting that the very first act of the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2 is just the opposite. He's calming the chaos, right? So the seas in Genesis 1-2 is this chaos, like we're supposed to understand the sea is this kind of chaotic mess as opposed land safe, sea scary, chaotic, and we see the Spirit of God hovering over, governing, sustaining, controlling. Side note there. So Genesis 1-2, Job also says that the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life, Job 33-4. The testimony of Scripture, however, is mostly silent on the specific activity of the Spirit in the, act of, in the initial act of creation. But those are some references there. Okay. Any questions or comments on the, the Father, Son, and Spirit in the work of creation? Proverbs 8, where this lady wisdom is kind of at work, is some... You know, Bible scholars see the work of the Son, you know, see that as kind of an allusion to Jesus. So that's maybe another example of maybe not a direct uh, line can be drawn there, but another thing to think through. Okay, well, our second main point uh, that we would hold like this as Christians on the doctrine of creation is that creation is distinct from God, yet always dependent on God. So the term that you may have heard before that relates to this idea is that of transcendence. The simplest explanation of transcendence is that God is far above his creation. And last week or the week before, we thought about God as holy. And if it seems to you that God's transcendence and God's holiness are similar, then you're, you're right. And I hope that you're making the connections between doctrines like the doctrine of creation and God's attributes, right? Because they inform one another. So how does the doctrine of creation inform our understanding of his transcendence? How does the doctrine of creation inform our understanding of God's transcendence? 
Good. So there's, Ryan was saying there's essentially two categories as a result of this. There's God and then everything else, right? And that informs the transcendence of God. Good. Some, yeah, go ahead, Frank. Yes, that's good. It's a really good point. So Frank was saying um, that this distinction allows evil to exist in the universe without compromising uh, the righteousness and holiness of God. Excellent point. So there's always a danger of uh, holding one attribute of God in our minds to the exclusion of another. Okay, we're all guilty of this and it's just part of our finiteness. But what aspect of God's nature might we overlook if we're focusing on the transcendence of God? So we're thinking about God as kind of this holy other being. What, what might be some attributes or aspects of God's nature that we might overlook in that moment? His eminence, right? God is transcendent and eminent. That is, while above his creation, he remains in his creation. The God of the Bible is not an abstraction. He's not an impersonal disinterested deity. He is involved and active in his creation, specifically with his people. So again, Job affirms the eminence of God in Job 12.10. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breadth of all mankind. God holds it all in his hand. So this is what we might call an anthropomorphism, right? God is spirit, and does not have a body like man. That's one of the catechism questions that we teach our kids. But the author of Job uses this anthropomorphism, this kind of metaphor to communicate something about God so that we might understand. So what does God holding the life of every living thing, including your life right now in this moment, in his hand communicate to you? What type of things do we hold in our hands? I saw you walking in this morning. Who's, what were you holding in your hand? Your daughter's hand. How precious is that, right? So the things that we hold in our hands are those things that are precious to us, right? That are valuable, whether it's the hand of a, a child or a lover, um, something that we want to cling to and protect. So do you see the imminence of God in relationship to his creation? And so in Acts, Paul tells us that in him, in God, we live and move and have our being in him, right? Acts 17, 28. And then there's Ephesians 4, 6, which affirms both God's transcendence and imminence in a single verse when Paul speaks of God, or when Paul speaks of one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all, right? Ephesians 4, 6. So let's look a little bit from an academic side at some other philosophies that unbelievers in our world today function out of, okay? So keep in mind that the biblical account of creation rules out these worldly philosophies. I think you'll see this as we walk through. So the first one to consider is materialism. So think about materialism for a second as a philosophy. So if we were to kind of draw, this is really profound.
my figure, not the idea. <laughs> so if we think about kind of the biblical doctrine of creation, right? So God distinct from his creation, but acting in it. Also, side note, isn't that kind of what we are as Christians, right? We are called out of the world, not of this world, but then sent back into it, right? So we feel that tension, right? Like we're not supposed to go hold ourselves off in some commune. Like God sends us back into the world, but we are distinct from the world. So it's kind of in a sense, we're mirroring God's, the way God, <clears throat> God interacts. So this is kind of the biblical model. So what would materialism look like if we're kind of following this same pattern? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, universe or matter, right? So that's all that exists. There's no God, there's no creator. The universe is eternal. It is all that exists. So materialism denies the existence of God altogether. Now, as Christians, we we would reject this, but sometimes we live as functional materialists, don't we? What are some ways that Christians... Genuine Christians might live as functional materialists. Yeah. What might be some of the, Yeah, what do we do with our money in those instances? That's great, yeah. We might hoard it, right? right? Sometimes it's like the extravagant spending is like, oh, that person's clearly not relating to money well, but it's real easy to fall on the other side and like accumulate, 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 which looks prudent. We're not, I'm not buying the car or the house or the boat or whatever, but... My, as you know, First Timothy read a while ago, my hope is in the uncertainty of riches. Yeah, great. What else? We don't pray. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Okay. So we're putting our trust in in worldly things, worldly leaders. Yeah, and not looking to God's justice. What about? the fact that we just really have a hard time thinking about death, right? If this is all there is, then avoid it at all costs and don't talk to me about it because my existence ends when my heart stops beating. But for the Christian, that's just not the case, right? It's not the case. We don't, yes, death is, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a result of the fall and we grieve it, but not of those without hope. Okay, what about pantheism? Uh, Frank already mentioned one of the consequences of pantheism. What is pantheism? Yeah. So there's no distinction, right? Everything that exists is God, so to speak. Um, God is not separate from the universe. So what aspects of God's character does pantheism deny? Frank, reiterate the one you said earlier, because that's a a great point that falls under this category. Evil and the, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's not, that's not fair. I've had time to think through. You, you made a great point that I was thinking about this when you pointed that, that, that if, if this is all that exists and evil, and we have to conclude that evil exists in the world, then God is not separate from evil, but is, is affected by it. Infected, maybe, a better word. What happens when the universe changes in pantheism? God changes. Right? And we talked last week about his immutability. Okay? So pantheism, pantheism denies these aspects of God's character. What about dualism? What are we going to have here? 
Ja. What modern cultural phenomenon flows out of this thought? It's already been referenced once in the systematic theology class. Anybody? Star Wars, right? There's two forces, or there's a force, and you know it can be, it can be harnessed for good or evil, right? You don't know who's going to win, right? That's the problem, right? Um, so in dualism, God and material, the material universe have existed side by side for all of eternity. This would be the Greeks' thoughts. We mentioned Plato and Aristotle earlier. So both things are eternal, um, but there's ultimately two forces in the universe, God and matter. Um, obvious problems, as Frank pointed out. Who's going to win the, this eternal struggle, uh, this conflict? Will God triumph over, over evil? This is also why the Greeks concluded that material things were evil, right? And we have to escape out, out of our material bodies. That, that's, you know, that's why they had such an issue with what Paul was teaching about our bodies being redeemed or Jesus taking on flesh, right? Because they were functioning from this presupposition. <clears throat> Some, yeah. Yeah, Gnosticism flows out of that, great. Most modern people uh, who consider themselves spiritual but aren't Christians, they're, they're functional dualists, right? There's some kind of, I believe in like this higher power, right? Um, think, you know, any kind of new age religion. Visit Sedona, Arizona, and you'll, you'll get what I'm talking about. Yeah, Sam. Hmm. Disembodied souls. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Books like Heaven is for Real, these kind of like, you know, people like seeing the light as they're approaching death. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're making this mistakes to some degree. Now, certainly, there is an intermediate state of heaven is what Scripture teaches. So when we die, our souls immediately go to be with God. Our bodies will be resurrected on the last day and then reunited with God. So the, the eternal state of the believer is not a disembodied soul, right? We will have bodies like our risen Lord. Okay, okay lastly, what about deism? I think this is probably the one that most of us are probably the closest to functionally embracing, maybe without knowing. What is deism? Yeah. So it's transcendence without imminence, right? Who, who are some of the famous deists? Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. One of you guys re- referenced how Thomas Jefferson would cut out all the miraculous things in the New Testament because he did, you know, in his idea, God, God created the universe and then like a watchmaker just wound it up and then let it go. Right? So there's naturalistic explanations for everything. God's not intervening uh, in the universe. How do, we, how do we maybe at times function like deists? Yeah. Yeah. So we don't pray. There's not worship in our hearts towards this creator God. Yeah? How so? Hmm. 
Okay? Yeah, it, yeah, it throws off a whole lot of, gets us thinking wrongly about how God, who, who God is, who, what he's like. Good, great points, all great points. Okay, any questions or comments on this before we move on? Our third point in your outline, does, oh, did somebody say something? Okay, I thought I talked over somebody, sorry. Our third point in the outline tackles the question of why. Why did God create anything at all? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, which we've used in our catechizing our children, starts with the following three questions. Who made you? Answer, God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you and all things? Answer, for his own glory. Right? Simple truths. Teach those to your kids if you have them or someday do. Isaiah 43, 7 clearly states that God created his people for his own glory. If you, we won't look at that, but you may have time to look at that later. Psalm 19, 1 through 2 teaches us that even the inanimate creation testifies to God's greatness. I love in the triumphal entry of Jesus, Jesus comes riding in on the donkeys, and what does he say? The, the Pharisees rebuke him because the people are you know, worshiping, hallelujah, you know, whatever. And Jesus says, if they don't praise me, the very rocks will cry out. I love that. It's like creation will give glory to its creator. Uh, flip over to Jeremiah 10.12. Let's read, someone read that verse for us. Jeremiah 10.12. How are we doing on time? We're okay? Okay, excellent, yeah. According to Jeremiah 10.12, what does creation show us about God? Absolutely. If you're paying attention and you look at creation, you have to conclude that this creator is powerful and wise and possesses all knowledge. What's really cool in this passage is this is in contrast here in Jeremiah to ignorant men who make worthless idols from their own hands, right? So it's worth noting at this point that for much of history, the leading scholars, in, particularly in, in Western civilization, the leading, I should say, natural scientists were Christians who were motivated to study creation for the glory of God. Sam Dawson referenced in the first week of class the two revelations of God, right? General revelation or natural revelation and then specific revelation or scripture. For the mindful Christian studying organic chemistry or human anatomy or astronomy or botany or whatever other ology you want, you want to put in there is in itself an act of worship and a service to his or her fellow man. If God created the world to show forth his glory, then the conclusion is clear. We as Christians should be leading the charge to know and understand the created order because in doing so, we see the mind of God. We should also point out that God's act of creation was not something he needed to do in order to be fulfilled. This would deny God's independence. God did not create out of necessity. Revelation 4.11, we referenced it earlier, says, you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. 
the creation of the universe was a totally free act of God. It was out of delight that God created. So to channel Jonathan Edwards again, God created out of abundance of his own delight in his Trinitarian fellowship. The delight of God the Father in God the Son and God the Son in God the Father and the Holy Spirit was so full that it overflowed, it spilled over, right, into creation in the same way that a fountain overflows and spills over. It's the nature of God to do so out of his abundance of delight and joy in and of himself. So how does this inform creative acts of human beings? How does this doctrine of God's creation inform human creativity? Anybody been to Rome? Seen the Sistine Chapel? What, what, what was going on in your heart and your mind in that moment, Lisa? Anybody listen to Bach's Cello Suite in G? Yo-Yo Ma's version, by the way, is probably my favorite. Anybody heard that? Nodding your heads. What wells up in your heart when you hear those stringed instruments? Right? These, these creative acts, they, whether it's someone else's or our own, right? Uh, we take delight in them. And if we're thinking, thinking rightly, as Lisa said, we thank God for them, right? Now, now most of us are not... Michelangelo or Johann Sebastian Bach, but we do mimic our creator in our creativity, and we should, we should take delight in it, right? We're honoring, we're honoring the Lord as we reflect. One other side note on Bach, there's some Christian apologist who says, there is the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, therefore there is a God. And they don't mean that tongue-in-cheek either, by the way. Our next point flows from this previous one. If God created the universe to reveal his glory, then we would expect creation to fulfill the purpose for which it was created. And that's in fact what we see. When God finished his work of creation, he took delight in it. What did he say? At the end of every day, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then at the last day, it is very good. Genesis 1.31. God saw everything that he had made And behold, it was very good. Why was it good? Because it accomplished its purpose, right? To show forth God's glory. Okay, so I think most Christians would wholeheartedly affirm the goodness of God's initial creation. But what about creation after the fall? Is the material creation still good in God's sight on this side of the fall? What do you think? Got a yes? Everybody, most, everyone's nodding their heads. Material creation is still good. Yeah. So that's a great question because that is the distinction, which, which is where I was going, right? The fall rendered the heart of man corrupt, right? There is nothing in the world that is corrupt except the heart of man, right? Creation is still good. 
Yes, it's, it's tainted by the fall, right? Which is why Romans 8 says that creation groans to be set free from its bondage to corruption because of our sin, right? Creation is not what it's fully supposed to be and it's groaning as it were. It's, it's begging God to set, set, it, set it free from the curse. Um, but creation itself is, is good, right? Um, because of this, we often, because our hearts are corrupt, we often abuse created things and use them for evil purposes. But creation itself is still good in God's sight, and we should see it good as well. Can someone think of an example of, of some created thing other than the human heart that is good but can be corrupted with its improper use? You could probably literally shout out the first thing that comes to your mind and it, it would work. But maybe with some thought, what comes to mind? Yeah. Within the boundaries of marriage, like, like a fireplace, sex is, it brings warmth and goodness, but outside of that boundary that God has set, it's destructive. Great. What else? Okay, how so? Yeah. Okay. One of my favorite examples of this as an eye doctor is cocaine. I don't have a drug problem, but when people think of cocaine, like they're like, what's good? We use cocaine to actually dilate the pupil in extreme circumstances. There's actually a good use of cocaine. The derivative Novocaine that numbs you know, that your dentist used to numb your mouth is also, is also a derivative of cocaine. What a, lots of things, right? I mean, all kinds of medicines, alcohol, money, right? Um, these are all things that are good but can be used improperly. So there's a helpful saying that goes like this, and it's used in lots of other contexts, but the saying is, abuse does not take away proper use. Oftentimes as Christians, we see the misuse of created things for unrighteous purposes, and then we just swear off those things wholeheartedly. Ten minutes, thank you. Um, But this doctrine reminds us that there is a legitimate use for everything in God's created order, and abuse of these things does not remove proper use. God intends us to use creation for his glory and the well-being of others. And when we do this, we can delight in his creation in its proper use. Any questions or comments? We've got about 10 minutes for our last point, which is just about right. Yeah, yeah, it's a good, great point. Um, I, I can see where both mindsets arise because I think there are kind of biblical examples that you can point to. Um, but it, the, the work of God in redemption is to restore that which was corrupted, not to start over. So it seems inconsistent, right, that when we're the ones who are the, who are the cause of the fall, that he would redeem us and then destroy everything else and start over from scratch as opposed to... God restoring or, or recreating. I think Edward's doctrine of continual creation maybe fits in with that a little bit, like because God's constantly recreating, uh, so to speak, you know, that that would suggest that there is this kind of continuity between 
um, all the things. What, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Do you have any something similar, something similar to that? Yeah. 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 It's good. All right. Save the worst for last. No, I'm kidding. What about the age of the earth? And I don't necessarily mean to get off on that topic, but just that's kind of a, uh, you know, emblematic of some of these things. We've talked about those things that we hold tight. Everything that we've set up to this point, as Christians, we want to hang on to this, and you can see why, right? If we let them go, everything else falls apart. But then there are these questions that come up um, when we're thinking about creation. Um, and so I've kind of put this topic towards the end, hoping that we might run out of time. But, no, I'm just, just kidding, sort of. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I don't, I don't want to cloud the glorious doctrine of God's creation by getting into the weeds. So we're just going to really mention these briefly. But as I, as I said er- earlier, I think it's only fair to acknowledge and helpful for us um, to acknowledge that all Christians, uh, not all Christians come to the same conclusions on some issues related to creation. Okay? Many Christians read Genesis 1 and 2 with the current understanding of modern science and find perceived conflict between the two. Um, But the first point that I want to make is this. There will be no final conflict between Scripture and science because all truth is God's truth. So if our interpretation of Scripture is right and the knowledge that science brings to light about the created order is right, then the two will not be in conflict. However, the reality is this. Science, in all its modern glory, is not infallible. Newsflash right? See the last, teen, last 18 months of the pandemic for evidence of this. Secondly, sometimes well-meaning Christians misinterpret some scriptural text. It's happened before. It will happen again. See Galileo and the Catholic Church for an example of this. So that's why I said there will be no final conflict between scripture and science. The second point that should be made is this. Any secular theory that denies God as creator is simply incompatible with the Bible. Any secular theory that denies God as creator is incompatible with the Bible. So I think those are kind of two good filters to push everything else through. I think most genuine Christians would ascribe to those points as well. With that said, in closing, there are basically four approaches to creationism Now, creationism is different from the doctrine of creation. It's a presupposition, right? So we're approaching the biblical text. We're approaching science with some presupposition of how we think these things work. That's kind of the difference between creationism and creation, just to make that distinction. So the first approach is that of young earth creationism. And the organization Answers in Genesis, if you want to jot these down and do some reading later on, you can Google it, find their websites. The organization Answers in Genesis is kind of the most famous representation of this, this approach. Young earth creationism, uh, the earth is roughly 6,000 years old based on the genealogies of scripture. God created the world in literal 24-hour days. Uh, the human race is, you know, less than 6,000 years old. Those are some of the tenets of young earth creationism. Um, the second approach is that of old earth creationism. And oh, I should have said this if it wasn't clear. These are, these are thoughts within evangelical Christians. This is not outside of the church, okay? Uh, The second is old earth creationism. And the organization Reasons to Believe would be uh, an example of this. Um, It's pretty self-explanatory. The the earth is old, much older than six to 10,000 years. Um, And 
God created matter maybe in Genesis 1-1 and then progressively created all the other things over some indeterminate amount of time and that would account for the geological record of the age of the earth and the fossil record and so forth and so on. The third approach is evolutionary creationism or what's historically been known as theistic evolution. Biologos is the kind of most prominent voice in that category. Um, They would ascribe to neo-Darwinian evolution. Um, They would believe that all of life form descended from one common ancestor. The fourth uh, is Intelligent Design, or ID. The Discovery Institute is an organization that is a proponent of this. And, you know, it's maybe not as distinct as the other three because there are probably young Earth creationists and old Earth creationists that look at Intelligent Design's arguments and go, yeah, it makes sense. But I encourage you to do your own research uh, on each of these. As far as other reading goes, uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, specifically the second half of the chapter on creation, he kind of dives into um, some of these approaches. Um, Another good resource is the one that I recommended earlier, 40 Questions About Creation and Evolution. Um, And then a book called A Controversy of the Ages, Why Christians Should Not Divide Over the Age of the Earth. And that's by Razor and Cabal, C-A-B-A-L. Okay? All good resources. I didn't want to hand one of those out because I didn't want to necessarily, you know, be persuading. It's hard. All those books are going to have a lean one way. Grudem kind of just lays them all out. But those other books, they're going to be coming from a specific viewpoint. But I think they're, they're fair treatments um, of those approaches. Um, let me just say, though, that none of these views, in, in my opinion, are airtight. I mean, they're problematic in their own ways. Um, So I would encourage you to hold these things loosely, okay? The doctrine of creation, what the, you know, large portion of our talk was about, teaches that God created the entire universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and God created it to glorify himself. This is a doctrine that has many wonderful applications for the Christian, as we've seen this morning. So let us be like the early Christians in Acts 2.46 who partook of food with glad and generous hearts, always with thanksgiving to God and trust in his provisions. Let us also remember that the doctrine of creation reminds us that God is sovereign over all the universe because it is his. He created it and we owe all that we have to him. And while he is transcendent and above all things, he is also eminently involved in our lives. So let us live coram deo, another Latin phrase for you this morning, which means before the face of God. And then lastly, we should enjoy reflecting our creator's work in our own creative activities with hearts full of delight and thanksgiving. So your homework assignment this week is to go home or somewhere and enjoy God's good creation for his glory. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teachings of creation that we have in your scripture. And yes, there are questions that come to mind and as science uh, evolves and the teachings change, it it brings up different questions for the church. But your truths um, that we have considered this morning are are rock solid and you are our creator and we see uh, your handiwork in all of creation and we ask that you would open our eyes to see even more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.